All right. Cool. I'm on. I wasn't sure if that was on. Thank you. All right. Good morning today. The, the word today, I don't know why I threw that in there, but I like uh, seeing the good morning again. I trick you. Uh, we're 17 seconds beyond morning, but I got it out of you. Good afternoon then. Uh, we are in our good news series again. Thank you for visiting if you're visiting. My name is Peter. And I really do want to say thank you and welcome. Bienvenidos. So uh, we are in our good news series this month. How many of y'all know we need some good news? I mean, national news, world news. There's not a whole lot of good news, and that's bad enough as it is, but the way it's covered is so much worse, right? Cable news is completely polarizing, right? You got one station that's talking about how the world's already gone to hell because of the liberals, of course, or maybe the communist conspiracy. And you got another station that's just mockingly celebrating a progression towards hell. And all the while, you got this diversity, which is really just disparity. Cable news is polarizing. But listen, the good news is revitalizing. Gives new life and refreshment. And we're going to talk about the good news today. And today we're going to discover the good news maybe perhaps in an unlikely place. You know, because just like you can still uh, read the news... The news, small n, news, and uh, these things that they used to make called newspapers. Uh, you can also discover the good news in this first testament, uh, which many of us know as the Old Testament. We're going to see God reveal himself in uh, the gospel of Isaiah, I call it. The, the good news in the, the word to the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. We we read his word and we stand to honor God's word. And Jesus preaches his good news revealed to Isaiah that we see later is really fulfilled in Christ. And we're going to see a picture of the gospel in how God encounters the prophet Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 6, if you have your Bibles. Otherwise, you can follow along with us. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Here we go. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train, or the hem, the edge, of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. These are two worshiping angels. Each seraphim had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy! Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, says Isaiah, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, thank you for your word that you reveal in the New Testament that, that your gospel, the good news in this to Isaiah, might have been concealed to many, but Lord, you've revealed to us the good news that is so much bigger than the news that we are accustomed to hearing. Lord, we pray that you would help us to encounter you so much like Isaiah here, that we could behold the greatness of your majesty, that even in the midst of that we could receive your mercy to be set in right place with you so that we could hear your voice, Master, and be sent out with you on mission to tell your good news to the whole earth and to take over the world with your love and the adventure of who you are. Help us to rightly celebrate today for your kingdom and your power and your glory. Amen. With our time today, I want to unpack the verses that we just read and then even the rest of the chapter of Isaiah 6 here and tell you about why this is a seed of the good news of Jesus Christ. And how there is an actual progression of the good news in this whole chapter. And I will talk about that progression from verses 1 through 4 all the way to verses 9 through 13. And to organize four main things that this progression reveals, I have four basic words through this chapter. We'll talk about the majesty, the mercy, the master, and the mission. So starting with verses 1 through 4, let's dive into this whole majestic moment, the majesty of God. This moment where God encounters Isaiah is every bit as wonderful and majestic as it is terrifying. You need to know that God is terrifyingly awesome and majestic. He's not just safe and tame and cozy. He is a loving father, but he is holy. He is majestic. He is full of majesty, and it is blindingly brilliant, the light that he shines. Verse 1, I mean, even a piece of his clothing is intimidating, right? It says the, the hem of his robe filled the whole room. That's a big robe, and if his clothing is intimidating, how much more these angelic beings with six wings on feet and covering face and stuff. I'm trying to get a picture of this, but they're so holy they can't stop talking about the holiness of God. There's a voice trembling, and all that they can do is to reflect upon the goodness of God. They are pretty majestic beings in their own right, these angels, but all they can do is say from all eternity, holy, holy, holy. Now you need to know something about this that's really important. Anytime a verse or, or a word is repeated twice in the Bible, uh, it is known as a Hebrew couplet. Okay? A Hebrew couplet. And it's, and it's meant to give... Uh, increasing emphasis to the meaning of that word. So, for instance, if a Hebrew couplet says holy, holy, what that means is extreme emphasis to the word holy, meaning most 
holy. And that's why you never say holy, holy. Almost never does the Bible say holy, holy, utilizing the Hebrew couplet when talking about a human being. Really, only God ultimately is holy, holy. Jesus uses the Hebrew couplet in the New Testament, Matthew 5 through 7, when he preaches the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about other things that you might know is true, but then he uses the Hebrew couplet and he says, truly, truly I say to you, meaning, look, there's a lot of truths out there, but let me tell you what is most true. You've heard a lot of things about laws that you should obey and things that are right and wrong, but let me tell you the heart of that matter, what is most true. And he is saying, basically, what I am saying is most true. It's a Hebrew couplet. Anything's time something's repeated twice. But look, when something's repeated three times, how much more? What this is saying when these angels appear, saying that God is holy, 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 and not just most holy, but infinitely holy. So holy it's indescribable. And it's no wonder verse 4 shows us that the thresholds, the building starts shaking. There's smoke filling the room, and undoubtedly Isaiah is losing his lunch. God is infinitely, indescribably holy. And you say, okay, Pastor Peter, all this terrifying holiness, what does that have to do with the good news? Well, thank you for asking me. Let me answer that question for you. You need to know that before the good news is about what it applies to, the good news is about the majestic essence of the person that gives the good news. You need to know that before anything else, before the good news is about how we were created and then how we fell and how God returns us to himself, that's the subject of the good news. The object of the good news is what's most foundational. The subject in any sentence, of course, is something that the object effects. But the object of the good news, the person who performs the good news unto us, the majestic one, is the heart of the good news, and he is holy and indescribably awesome and majestic. And we need to know this. If we know the majesty of the holiness of God, then all of the other news is in comparison very small, whether it's pretty good news or really bad news, it's small news compared to the majestic holiness of God. And that's important. See, Moses in Exodus he knew that you could catch a glimpse of God's face and you would die because God is so majestic. And he knew that he would have to be enlarged to be in God's presence because he is so great. I've heard it say before, said before, you become what you behold. So go with me for a second here. If you behold filth, whether it's online or wherever else, you become, real simple, you become filthy, right? Now, if by God's mercy, I'm skip, skipping ahead for a second to borrow this for this illustration, skipping ahead to, to my second point, but if you behold God and you don't die, you become godly. You become what you behold. And when you're enlarged by a large view of God, then the small sin struggles that seem small, and then maybe they seem really big because they're bigger than you, or the small worries that might still be bigger than you, when you behold a large view of God, you become larger. 
you become enlarged. And maybe those problems or worries or fears, they don't necessarily go away, but they are reduced and subordinated to little bite-sized chunks compared to the glory and majesty of God. And that, in essence, is the good news. The good news starts with the greatness and the majesty of the giver of the good news. I've heard another thing said before. This is a good one. Don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is, right? Because you know what? Your problems won't go away. It's not mind over matter. Problems are there, but when we behold the majesty of God, they're put in the right place. God is awesome, and he's majestic, and wherever you are today, that's essentially what you need to know more than anything else. Because regardless of what you need, the good news to apply to, your marriage, your finances, your heart, your mind, that's important, but what's most essential and foundational is the person applying the good news, and you need to know he's so much greater than those things. He's so much more majestic, and the glory of him is weightier than all the things that might weigh you down. And so, practically, we need to magnify his majesty. And I have a helpful example, an illustration from a pastor and one of my heroes. His name's John Piper. He is a pastor and uh, an author from Minnesota. And he said this. He says, we need to magnify God like with telescopes rather than like with microscopes. Okay? So go with me here for a second. Telescopes, in essence, magnify us, really. It magnifies our own ability in our finite perceptions to perceive infinite majesty, whereas microscopes take tiny, finite objects and they enlarge or magnify the objects themselves. So that which is actually smaller, we have greater regard for because it's, it's, it's magnifying the thing and our ability to perceive it. Now, there is no moral element to literally utilizing uh, microscopes or telescopes. But this provides a metaphor for what we do in life. We tend to magnify smaller things in our life. And what we need more than anything is for God to give us the ability to be magnified in our person as we magnify the infinitely large person. We personally need to be enlarged by a large view of God. And we need God to help us enlarge, like with a telescope, our vision of who he is. And therefore, we'll be given a bigger glory, a a bigger weightiness to stomp on those things that are in comparison to God, very small. That's what we need. That is the essence of the gospel and the good news. Now you might say, okay, Pastor Peter, that's a decent illustration, but how do you actually magnify God? Again, good questions. Thank you for asking. About seven years ago, when we first started this church, I was talking about the majesty of God, and I, uh, this is kind of p- pr- probably what you do when you're leading a church of mostly college students and you're in your mid-20s. Uh, I said, you know what some of us need to do? We don't need to just worry about our problems. You just need to get away and behold the majesty of God. In fact, just drive to the Grand Canyon right now. That'll put your problems in place. And Actually, one young couple in our church did just that, Jose and Emily, a young couple in our church. They went home after church. Uh, they, they got some, a change of clothes at home. And that Tuesday, they tagged me in a photo on Facebook with them at the Grand Canyon. 
Yes, we had Facebook back then. Here's the point. I don't know if it was at the Grand Canyon where they got the vision for their life to, uh, to change the world by fostering and adopting out of foster care, which they're doing right now. They're changing the world. I don't know if it was there, but I do know that it was from the majesty of the throne of God that they knew that there's a vision for their life, and they're not going to waste it. We need to behold and magnify the majesty of God. And maybe practically today you can't, after church and after lunch, of course, you can't maybe get in your car and head out west to the Grand Canyon. But you know what you can do? You can allow God to interrupt your schedule and your regular flow to behold his majesty. Maybe tomorrow morning you can wake up a little earlier and get your Bible out and speak it out loud. You know, preach the gospel to yourself, the good news, and overtake all your thoughts and insecurities or maybe you can go on a walk and listen to worship music. Do something out of your routine to intentionally behold the majesty of God and let that overwhelm your schedule. And watch how God can meet you there. More than anything, we need to behold the good news of his majesty. That's the good news. But the bad news is, really, we can't. And that seems weird, but look, Verse 9, the very next verse after the verse 8 that we read, tells us kind of a secret of why we can't necessarily do that on our own. Because in hearing, we don't understand. In seeing, we don't perceive. In essence, for us to perceive really, truly God's glory, we need something better than a telescope. We need infinite mercy to behold infinite majesty. Number two, we need the mercy. And this is seen here in this encounter with Isaiah, in this moment where he perceives the holiness of God. He is aware that he is unclothed. He needs something greater than just physical clothes to clothe him. He needs something like infinite righteousness to be in the presence of an infinitely pure and holy God and not die. He is aware, respectively, of his own lack of holiness as he is in the burning presence of a holy God. And that's why many people, uh, theologians, think that this is as close to Hebrew cussing in verse 5 as possibly. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, oh no. And in that moment, his guilt is taken away. Uh, then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. I'd like to know what uh, angelic tongs look like. That's another message, though. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's, it's washed. It's burned away. How would you like to hear that from God? Directly speaking to you. You see... He knew that he was in need of something to cover him in the presence of God. He was, by God's light, exposed in his darkness. Go with me for a second. Imagine you're in a dimly lit room. You're, you're hanging out. You're comfortable, right? You're comfortable. You're watching you know, your favorite show on Netflix, right? And, of course, in this story, you're, you're a Christian, so uh, you're, you're not... You're not using someone else's login here. You're using your own login. You're not ripping this off. So you're, you're, uh, you're, 
you're just enjoying, that's another message there. You're just enjoying, you're comfortable in this dimly lit room. You're watching your favorite show. You're, you're just comfy. All of a sudden, though, someone comes in and flips the light switch on. Super bright. And in that moment, you see cockroaches scurrying around. And all of a sudden, you see dust everywhere. And there's grime all over the couch you're sitting on. In that moment, what would you feel like? You'd feel dirty. But let me underline something important real quick. It wasn't the light that made it dirty in there. The light just exposed and revealed dirtiness. I became comfortable with religion as a young man and uh, going to church every once in a while. Never really knew God, though, but I was good with that. I was comfortable with my little perversions and the things that I thought were so cute right? I, I was a pretty good guy, and I played baseball, so I had lots of comparison. I, I was way better than the worst, and I hung out with those guys all the time, so I felt like I was a pretty decent guy, and I was comfortable with that, but then I was led into a real relationship with a holy God, uh, campus ministry. Uh, some students evangelized me, and I came to know Jesus. In the first few years of my walk with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus, I would hang out with a lot of godly people, and often I felt uncomfortable. I felt dirty. Now, I would love to say that I only ever felt dirty because they were jerks and judgmental, mean Christians, right? But that's just not the story. I mean, sometimes, you know, maybe that's the case. We as Christians, we need to stop being such judgmental jerks. But look, we need to stop blaming godly people for being godly sometimes. When we're being godly, what it does is it's light that exposes the darkness, and that is what was happening to me. And in this moment where Isaiah encounters a living God, he's not going to blame God for God's godliness, right? He's not going to be like, look, God, let me help you with your evangelistic approach here. You're making me feel uncomfortable, burning stuff, shaking stuff. Come on, let me help you with your approach. No, he did what you should do. When you encounter God in his righteousness and it exposes your unrighteousness, he started loathing his dirtiness. He's saying, look, I thought I was a pretty decent prophet yesterday, but God, I know right now there's a specific thing that I need from you in a specific place in me, my lips. And isn't it interesting that as he confesses his specific sin, there is a specific remedy that goes and burns to that very specific particular place. This is a foreshadowing of the atonement that particularly and specifically Jesus can fulfill in the New Testament. Only Jesus, who is 100% perfect, can burn away all of our, our unrighteousness and clothe us with his own righteousness. He lived the life that we should have lived, that righteous life, and he died the death that we should have died in our place and he suffered the burning, hot wrath of God that we particularly deserve so that he could atone and wash us and set us right so that we can face God in the holiness of his presence, covered not by our dirtiness and unrighteousness, but covered by the blood of Jesus and right before God so we could behold his majesty. And it's not something that kills us, but something that enlivens and enlarges us.
And that's good news, not only because it's majestic, but because we are covered by mercy. And what happens with Isaiah is what happens specifically with anyone who calls out to Jesus, like Isaiah called out with his sin. So just like there was a specific remedy that got to Isaiah's lips, what what is something specific that you're needing God to touch with his mercy? Let me tell you some good news with you identifying and confessing that, whether it's in growth groups or any other place. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from wait for this word, all unrighteousness. That's one of my favorite verses. He can cleanse you from everything. How big is your sin? How dirty is your sin? Greater question, how wonderful is the majesty of the merciful one that wants to come and touch that place? All unrighteousness. So if you're trying to reluctantly withhold from the presence of God, maybe it's hard for you to get to growth groups because It feels uncomfortable in those places where the light exposes your sin. Be careful because what you're protecting yourself from is the very mercy of God that makes you free and whole and overwhelmingly joyful. It's the mercy of the majestic one. So because of that, we can be forgiven. But we have to ask, why? Why all this washing? Why all this forgiveness? What for? Notice how we're forgiven, past tense, so that we can follow present tense, so that we can follow the command and the voice of the number three, the master. Verse eight, it says, right after this whole scene of atonement, it says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Now, pause here. I believe that he was able to discern the voice of the master because he had received his mercy. And so now he, he the, the one who had atoned for his, the sin of his lips, has attuned his ears to hear his voice, and therefore he is able to say, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. I love how God did not allow Isaiah to remain in this place of self-consciousness about his own sin, so it wouldn't override his God consciousness of the majesty of God. He didn't let him, Isaiah obsess over his own inadequacies. Hello, does anyone ever do that? He didn't let him obsess over himself because he, he wanted them to be caught up in the majesty of the master who had a mission for him moving forward, who did not want him to be caught in this place of shame. The same goes for you. Isaiah says, here I am. I'm committed to you. You're my God. He accepts him. He says, I do. I'm all in. Ten years ago, uh, I said, I do to my wife. We got married. Um, And in that moment, you need to know, I didn't just say, I do to part of her. I said, I do to all of her. Body, soul, and spirit. Her whole being, I married. I didn't get you to pick one part of that or the other. And listen, If you behold the majesty of God and you receive the mercy of God, you're brought into a relationship. You said, I do, to all of Jesus. Not just the part that saves you, but the part that wants to rule you with his love and his power. He is not just Savior, but Lord. Or in other words, if you've received his mercy, 
then he's also your master. I've heard it said before, either Jesus is the Lord of all your life or he is not the Lord at all in your life. Isaiah said yes to the master. And isn't it interesting, verse 8, have you ever noticed if you've read this before? It says, who will I send? Abruptly it goes into verse 8. And Isaiah's like, pick me, send me. But he never even said what to, right? There's no where, there's no what yet. It's because he was saying yes to the voice of the master who's so majestic and he'd received such a great mercy that in comparison with that, it doesn't matter what you have for me. I'll do it. You don't have to convince me. You don't have to say, you don't even have to make it easy for me. Whatever you say, I hear your voice and I'm down for this. That's what he says. Some of us are waiting on that next thing for God to send us into. And you need to know before there's a next mission for you, there is a master who wants you to hear his voice. And so often we can get caught up in that next thing, but God's saying, first I want you to obey my voice in this thing. Because what's more fundamental than that next mission is you obeying my voice as master. You know what that next mission, that next thing for your life is going to be so much more joyful, so much more exuberating and uh, exhilarating when it's from a place launched from obedience and you hear his voice. So you need to know that he wants you as a child to hear his voice to receive his mercy. And I want to preach to you for a second because listen, God has great plans for your life. To prosper you, everyone say prosper. To prosper you and not to harm you. And he wants to launch you out into a great and overwhelming mission, but it's from a place of obedience, hearing his voice. So what's an area in in your life that maybe is unresolved, that God's already spoken to, and he wants you to hear his tender fatherly voice where he's saying this thing this unresolved relationship uh, this unforgiveness this habit that I really want you uh, to, to address with me hear my voice uh, it, I have a, I'm going to give you another chance here listen to me he's speaking to you right now he's speaking to me right now I know that for sure right when I woke up this morning and he's still speaking what is he saying to you he wants you to attune your ears to his voice And then, number four, he launches you into his mission. Now, God lays out the mission after Isaiah already volunteers. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Verse 9 goes on. He said, okay, now go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and they're blind and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, says Isaiah, well, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are in many in the midst of, are many in the midst of the land. And Lord, though a tenth of it remain, It will be burned again like a terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And that's how the chapter ends. 
Again, this is good news, and I'll get to that. First, I need a volunteer. Do I have a, can I see a, a hand? Any volunteers? Okay, thank you. Right after this service, I need you to, to give me a ride to Canada. <laughs> Don't you wish you would have known what you're volunteering for first? But this is what happens with Isaiah. I mean, let me paraphrase verses 8 through 13 for you, okay? This is my paraphrase. The Holy One says, all right, I need a volunteer. Isaiah's like, ooh, 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 pick me. He says, okay, here's what's going to happen. For the next several years of your life, I'm going to need you to preach. But here's what's going to happen. No one's ever going to listen to you, and they sure will be mad about it. And um, you're never really going to see a miracle. And, and you know what? While you're preaching, pretty much everything is going to die right in front of your face. That's what you're going to go do. All right, go do it, buddy. And that's just what happened. And that's what Isaiah went out and accomplished. And you know what? He joyfully fulfilled his mission because he was serving preeminently the master from whom he'd received the mercy so he could enjoy his majesty. And he fulfilled that mission. And because of what Isaiah has done, Verse 13 alludes to the seed. The holy seed is its stump. Everything was reduced to this seed. And Jesus comes on the scene a few hundred years later and talks about how that seed becomes a holy, mighty, mustard tree. And that's not just a metaphor. That's the reason why you look around this room and there's the beautiful, majestic diversity of humanity in this room enjoying a god we have no business on our own enjoying. It's the kingdom of God that Isaiah fulfilled the mission to prepare the way so that Jesus could make manifest and that we could behold him, receive his mercy, hear the voice of his mastership and be set on mission to obey him. There is a mission for all of us, and it is a beautiful mission. It's not a mission like Isaiah's mission. We get to experience the exhilaration and the adventure and the fruitfulness, the manifest fruitfulness of our master in ways that Isaiah never experienced. And I want you to know that the mission of God is a, it's a team adventure. When we talk about growth groups on Sunday, uh, we hope that we're inviting and persuading you into something more than church on Sunday. But listen, people who are a part of our growth groups aren't just people who just have a fix for church and Sunday they just need a little more churchiness than Sunday, right? The reason why we're engaged in growth groups and intentional relationships is because we have behold, beheld the majesty of God, received his mercy, and together we're walking that mercy out and hearing the voice of our master. And he has a mission for us unto one another, into the city, unto our family members, our co-workers. And it is a glorious adventure of a, of a mysterious mission. And listen, we grow together. We grow in being followers of Christ, family-focused and fishers for men. And the primary place where we see that play out is in our growth groups. And so for you today, you need to know that in the coming weeks and months, we're going to talk about an adventure in a forthcoming, specific, 
mission opportunity to join our church in ways like you've never seen before to touch this city. We have plans, we have resources, we have an exciting mission ahead. But first and foremost, you need to be connected to the people that we're growing together so that you don't miss out on any of that, so that you can learn about what our growth groups are and what the growth steps are, and that you can play a part of it. But before the mission, let's draw to a close. And is there anything that the voice of the master is calling you to that maybe you've left undone and you just need to decide in your heart, okay, I'm going to address that thing. He's a loving father who disciplines you and he doesn't want that left undone because he wants your wholeness. That's what he paid a high price for. What is the master speaking to you before the mission necessarily so that you can be ready for that? Or is it even before that, is he even yet your master? Have you ever embraced Jesus' mercy? And has he ever become functionally your savior? Have you ever confessed your sin and fully and finally received his forgiveness? Have you ever been washed, atoned, made new? If that's you, then it's a really scandalously simple prayer that you can pray today. Even as we're making eye contact, you can in your heart Pray to God and say, God, make me new. Have mercy on me. I give my life to you like you gave your life to me. And you know what? God is so powerful and majestic. He hears your prayers and he can make you new right now as we're talking. That's how powerful he is. Now, I would advise you uh, to walk that out with someone. If you just prayed that prayer, don't be in a hurry to leave. Talk to someone about it. Let's grow together. We have a mission something that we're sent on by our master from whom we've received great mercy. But listen, let's all behold his majesty before anything else in a great and mighty new way. Can we stand to our feet, please? Now, again, I don't think that uh, you need to drive out west to behold his majesty, but I still am going to issue a challenge. What is something that you can do to interrupt your regular schedule, to see an irregular, supernatural Thing happen in your life where you behold Jesus in a new way. That's a challenge to you.